welcome everyone to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It's time for another O. Henry story, and today we have two stories for you. After the stories, we're asking that you leave us a review either at Apple or at castbox.fm, our new favorite place for Android listeners, if you enjoy this episode or others we've done. We'll read a few at the end of today's episode, so thank you. O'Henry's prolific writing period began in 1902 in New York City, where he wrote 381 short stories. He wrote one story a week for the New York World Sunday Magazine for over a year. Some of his best and least known work is contained in Cabbages and Kings, whose title was inspired by Lewis Carroll's poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter. His second collection of stories, The Four Million, was released in 1906. Those stories, like the ones today, are set in New York City, and the title is based on the population of the city at that time, the Four Million. The collection contains several short story masterpieces, including The Gift of the Magi, which we have in our archives, The Cop and the Anthem, which is coming up one of these days soon, and many others. Henry had an obvious affection for New York City and its diversity of people and places, a reverence that rises up through many of his stories. Today, a doubleheader, beginning with A Sacrifice Hit by O. Henry. The editor of Hearthstone magazine had his own ideas about the selection of manuscript for his publication. His theory is no secret. In fact, he will expound it to you willingly, sitting at his mahogany desk, smiling benignantly and tapping his knee gently with his gold-rimmed eyeglasses. The Hearthstone, he will say does not employ a staff of readers. We obtain opinions of the manuscripts submitted to us directly from types of the various classes of our readers. That is the editor's theory, and this is the way he carries it out. When a batch of MSS is received, the editor stuffs every one of his pockets full of them and distributes them as he goes about during the day. The office employees, the hall porter, the janitor, the elevator man, messenger boys, the waiters at the cafe where the editor has lunch, the man at the newsstand where he buys his evening paper, the grocer and milkman, the guard on the 530 uptown elevated train, the ticket chopper at 60th Street, the cook and maid at his home. These are the readers who pass upon MSS or manuscripts sent in to the Hearthstone magazine. If his pockets are not entirely emptied by the time he reaches the bosom of his family, the remaining ones are handed over to his wife to read after the baby goes to sleep. A few days later, the editor gathers in the manuscripts during his regular rounds and considers the verdict of his assorted readers. This system of making up a magazine has been very successful, and the circulation, paced by the advertising rates, is making a wonderful record of speed. The Hearthstone Company also publishes books, and its imprint is to be found on several successful works, all recommended, says the editor, by the Hearthstone's army of volunteer readers. Now and then, according to talkative members of the editorial staff, the Hearthstone has allowed manuscripts to slip through its fingers on the advice of its heterogeneous readers that afterward proved to be famous sellers when brought out by other houses. For instance, the gossips say, the rise and fall of Silas Latham, was unfavorably passed upon by the elevator man, the office boy unanimously rejected the boss. In the bishop's carriage was contemptuously looked upon by the streetcar conductor. 
The deliverance was turned down by a clerk in the subscription department whose wife's mother had just begun a two-month's visit at his home. The Queen's queer came back from the janitor with the comment, So is the book. But, nevertheless, the Hearthstone adheres to its theory and system, and it will never lack volunteer readers. For each one of the widely scattered staff, from the young lady stenographer in the editorial office, to the man who shovels in coal, whose adverse decision lost to the Hearthstone Company the manuscript of The Underworld, has expectations of becoming editor of the magazine some day. This method of the Hearthstone was well known to Alan Slayton when he wrote his novelette entitled Love Is All. Slayton had hung about the editorial offices of all the magazines so persistently that he was acquainted with the inner workings of every one in Gotham. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. He knew not only that the editor of the Hearthstone handed his MSS around among different types of people for reading, but that the stories of sentimental love interest went to Miss Pupkin, the editor's stenographer. Another of the editor's peculiar customs was to conceal invariably the name of the writer from his readers of manuscripts, so that a glittering name might not influence the sincerity of their reports. Slayton made Love Is All the effort of his life. He gave it six months of the best work of his heart and brain. It was a pure love story. Fine, elevated, romantic, passionate. A prose poem that set the divine blessing of love. I am transposing from the manuscript. High above all earthly gifts and honors, and listed it in the catalog of heaven's choicest rewards. Slayton's literary ambition was intense. He would have sacrificed all other worldly possessions to have gained fame in his chosen art. He would almost have cut off his right hand, or have offered himself to the knife of the appendicitis fancier to have realized his dream of seeing one of his efforts published in the Hearthstone. Slayton finished Love Is All and took it to the Hearthstone in person. The office of the magazine was in a large, conglomerate building presided under by a janitor. As the writer stepped inside the door on his way to the elevator, a potato masher flew through the hall, wrecking Slayton's hat and smashing the glass of the door. Closely following in the wake of the utensil flew the janitor, a bulky, unwholesome man, suspenderless and sordid, panic-stricken and breathless. A frowsy, tall woman with flying hair followed the missile. The janitor's foot slipped on the tiled floor. He fell in a heap with an exclamation of despair. The woman pounced upon him and seized his hair. The man bellowed lustily. Her vengeance reeked. The Varego rose and stalked triumphant as Minerva, back to some cryptic domestic retreat at the rear. The janitor got to his feet, blown and humiliated. This is married life, he said to Slayton with a certain bruised humor. That's the girl I used to lay awake of nights thinking about. Sorry about your hat, mister. Say, don't snitch to the tenants about this, will you? I don't want to lose me job. 
Slater took the elevator at the end of the hall and went up to the offices of the Hearthstone. He left the manuscript of Love is All with the editor, who agreed to give him an answer to its availability at the end of a week. Slayton formulated his great winning scheme on his way down. It struck him with one brilliant flash, and he couldn't refrain from admiring his own genius in conceiving the idea. That very night, he set about carrying it into execution. Miss Puffkin, the Hearthstone stenographer, boarded in the same house with the author. She was an oldish, thin, exclusive, languishing, sentimental maid, and Slayton had been introduced to her some time before. The writer's daring and self-sacrificing project was this. He knew that the editor of the Hearthstone relied strongly upon Miss Pupkin's judgment in the manuscript of romantic and sentimental fiction. Her taste represented the immense average of the mediocre women who devour novels and stories of that type. The central idea and keynote of Love is All was love at first sight, the enrapturing, irresistible, soul-thrilling feeling that compels a man or woman to recognize his or her spirit mate as soon as the heart speaks to heart. Suppose he should impress this divine truth upon Miss Puffkin personally. Would she not surely endorse her new and rapturous sensations by recommending highly to the editor of the Hearthstone the novelette Love is All? Slayton thought so, and that night he took Miss Puffkin to the theater. The next night he made vehement love to her in the dim parlor of the boarding house. He quoted freely from Love is All, and he wound up with Miss Puffkin's head on his shoulder and visions of literary fame dancing in his head. But Slayton did not stop at lovemaking. This, he said to himself, was the turning point of his life, and, like a true sportsman, he went the limit. On Thursday night, he and Miss Puffkin walked over to the big church in the middle of the block and were married. Brave Slayton! Chateaubriand died in a garret. Byron courted a widow. Keats starved to death. Poe mixed his drinks. De Quincey hit the pipe. Aid lived in Chicago. James kept on doing it. Dickens wore white socks. De Maupassant wore a straitjacket. Tom Watson became a populist. Jeremiah wept. All these authors did these things for the sake of literature. But thou didst cap them all. Thou marriedst a wife for to carve for thyself a niche in the temple of fame. On Friday morning, Mrs. Slayton said she would go over to the Hearthstone office, hand in one or two manuscripts that the editor had given her to read, and resign her position as stenographer. Was there anything that... Uh, "'Fancied you in the stories that you're going to turn in?' asked Slayton with a thumping heart. "'There was one novelette that I liked so much,' said his wife. "'I haven't read anything in years that I thought was half as nice and true to life.' That afternoon Slayton hurried down to the Hearthstone office. He felt that his reward was close at hand. With a novelette in Hearthstone, literary reputation would soon be his.' The office boy met him at the railing in the outer office. It was not for unsuccessful authors to hold personal colloquy with the editor, except at rare intervals. Slayton, hugging himself internally, was nursing in his heart the exquisite hope of being able to crush the office boy with his forthcoming success. He inquired concerning his novelette. The office boy went into the sacred precincts 
and brought forth a large envelope, thick with more than the bulk of a thousand dicks. "'The boss told me to tell you he's sorry,' said the boy. "'But your manuscript ain't available for the magazine.' Slayton stood, dazed. "'Can you tell me?' he stammered. "'Whether or no Miss Puff... "'Whether or no Miss Puff... "'That is my... "'I mean, Miss Rufkin... "'handed in a novel at this morning "'that she'd been asked to read?' "'Sure she did,' answered the office boy, wisely. "'I heard the old man say that Miss Pupkin said it was a daisy. "'The name of it was Married for the Mazuma, "'or the Working Girl's Triumph.' "'Say you,' said the office boy, confidentially. "'Your name's Slayton, ain't it? "'I guess I mixed cases on you without meaning to do it. "'The boss gave me some manuscript to hand around the other day, "'and I got the ones for Miss Pupkin and the janitor mixed.' I guess it's all right, though. And then Slayton looked closer and saw on the cover of his manuscript, under the title, Love is All, the janitor's comment, and the memory of the janitor fighting with his wife just a few days ago, suddenly came back to him. The janitor's comment was scribbled with a piece of charcoal. It read, Love is all? The hell you say. And our second story... THE FAIRY OF UNFULFILLMENT by O. Henry At the street corner, as solid as granite in the rush-hour tide of humanity, stood the man from Nome. The arctic winds and sun had stained him berry brown. His eyes still held the azure glint of the glaciers. He was alert as a fox, as tough as a caribou cutlet, and as broad-gauged as the aurora borealis. He stood sprayed by a Niagara of sound the crash of the elevated trains, clanging cars, pounding of rubberless tires, and the antiphony of the cab and truck drivers indulging in scarifying repartee. And so, with his gold dust cashed into the merry air of a hundred thousand, and with the cakes and ale of one week in Gotham turning bitter on his tongue, the man from Nome sighed to set foot again in Chilkoot, the exit from the land of street noises and Dead Sea apple pies. Up 6th Avenue, with the tripping, scurrying, chattering, bright-eyed, homing tide, came the girl from Cyber Masons. The man from Nome looked and saw, first, that she was supremely beautiful after his own conception of beauty, and next, that she moved with exactly the steady grace of a dog sled on a level crust of snow. His third sensation was an instantaneous conviction that he desired her greatly for his own. This quickly do men from Nome make up their minds. Besides, he was going back to the north in a short time, and to act quickly was no less necessary. A thousand girls from the great department store of Cyber Mason, up 6th Avenue with the tripping, scurrying, chattering, bright-eyed homing tide came the girl from Cyber Mason's. A thousand girls from the great department store of Cyber Mason flowed along the sidewalk, making navigation dangerous to men whose feminine field of vision for three years has been chiefly limited to seawash and Chilcot squaws. But the man from Nome, loyal to her who had resurrected his long-catched heart, plunged into the stream of pulchritude and followed her. Down 23rd Street she glided swiftly, looking to neither side, no more flirtatious than the bronze Diana above the garden. Her fine brown hair was neatly braided, her neat waist and unwrinkled black skirt were eloquent of the double virtues, taste and economy. 
Ten yards behind followed the smitten man from Nome. Miss Clarabel Colby, the girl from Cybermasons, belonged to that sad company of mariners known as Jersey Commuters. She walked into the waiting room of the ferry and up the stairs, and by a marvelous swift little run caught the ferry boat that was just going out. The man from Nome closed up his ten yards in three jumps and gained the deck close beside her. Miss Colby chose a rather lonely seat on the outside of the upper cabin. The night was not cold, and she desired to be away from the curious eyes and tedious voices of the passengers. Besides, she was extremely weary and drooping from lack of sleep. On the previous night, she had graced the annual ball and oyster fry of the West Side Wholesale Fish Dealers Assistant Social Club Number 2, thus reducing her usual time of sleep to only three hours. And the day had been uncommonly troublous. Customers had been inordinately trying. The buyer in her department had scolded her roundly for letting her stock run down. Her best friend, Mamie Tuthill, had snubbed her by going to lunch with that dockery girl. The girl from Cybermasons was in that relaxed, softened mood that often comes to the independent feminine wage earner. It is a mood most propitious for the man who would woo her. Then she has yearnings to be set in some home and heart, to be comforted, and to hide behind some strong arm and rest. But Miss Clarabel Colby was also very sleepy. There came to her side a strong man, browned and dressed carelessly in the best of clothes, with his hat in his hand. "'Lady,' said the man from Nome, respectfully, "'excuse me for speaking to you, but I, I saw you on the street, and—and—' and... "'Oh, gee!' remarked the girl from Cybermasons, glancing up with the most capable coolness. "'Ain't there any way to ever get rid of you, mashers?' I've tried everything from eating onions to using hat pins. Be on your way, Freddy. I'm not one of that kind, lady, said the man from Nome. Honest, I'm not. As I say, I saw you on the street, and I wanted to know you so bad I couldn't help following you. I was afraid I wouldn't ever see you again in this big town unless I spoke up, and that's why I done so. Miss Colby looked once shrewdly at him in the dim light on the ferryboat. No, he did not have the perfidious smirk or the brazen swagger of the lady-killer. Sincerity and modesty shone through his boreal tan. It seemed to her that it might be good to hear a little of what he had to say. "'You may sit down,' she said, laying her hand over a yawn with ostentatious politeness. "'And mind, don't get fresh, or I'll call the steward.' "'My name's Bladen,' said he. "'Henry Bladen.' "'Are you real sure it ain't Jones?' asked the girl, leaning toward him, with delicious, knowing raillery. "'I'm down from Nome,' he went on, with anxious seriousness. "'I scraped together a pretty good lot of dust up there, and brought it down with me.' "'Oh, say,' she rippled, pursuing persiflage with engaging lightness. "'Then you must be on the White Wings Force. I thought I'd seen you somewhere.' "'You didn't see me on the street today when I saw you. "'I never look at fellows on the street. "'Well, I looked at you, and I never looked at anything before "'that I thought was half as pretty. "'Shall I keep the change?' "'Yes, I reckon so. "'I reckon you could keep anything I've got. "'I reckon I'm what you would call a rough man, "'but I could be awful good to anybody I liked. 
I've had a rough time of it up yonder, but I beat the game. Nearly five thousand ounces of dust was what I cleaned up while I was there. Goodness, exclaimed Miss Colby, obligingly sympathetic. It must be an awful dirty place, whatever it is. And then her eyes closed. The voice of the man from Nome had a monotony in its very earnestness. Besides, what dull talk was this of brooms and sweeping and dust? She leaned her head back against the wall. Miss, said the man from Nome, with deeper earnestness and monotony, I never saw anybody I liked as well as I do you. I know you can't think that way of me right yet, but can't you give me a chance? Won't you let me know you and see if I can make you like me? The head of the girl from Cyber Mason slid over gently and rested upon his shoulder. Sweet sleep had won her, and she was dreaming rapturously of the wholesale fish dealer's assistance ball. The gentleman from Nome kept his arms to himself. He did not suspect sleep, and yet he was too wise to attribute the movement to surrender. He was greatly and blissfully thrilled, but he ended by regarding the head upon his shoulder as an encouraging preliminary merely advanced as a harbinger of his success, and not to be taken advantage of. One small speck of alloy discounted the gold of his satisfaction. Had he spoken too freely of his wealth? He wanted to be liked for himself. "'I want to say, miss,' he said, "'that you can count on me. They know me in the Klondike from Juneau to Circle City and down the whole length of the Yukon.' Many a night I've laid in the snow up there where I worked like a slave for three years and wondered if I'd ever have anybody to like me. I didn't want all that dust just myself. I thought I'd meet just the right one sometime. And I'd done it today. Money's a mighty good thing to have, but to have the love of the one you like best is better still. If you was to ever marry a man, miss, which would you rather he'd have? Cash! The word came sharply and loudly from Miss Colby's lips, giving evidence that in her dreams she was now behind her counter in the great department store of Cybermation. Her head suddenly bobbed over sideways. She awoke, sat straight, and rubbed her eyes. The man from Nome was gone. Gee, I believe I've been asleep, said Miss Colby. I wonder what became of the white wings. <laughs> Another great story from O. Henry. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We appreciate new subscribers to both Apple and CastBox.fm. So tell a friend about us, please, and have them subscribe. As you already know, subscription is free no matter where you find us. Thank you. And don't forget, we always need new subscribers at Patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories. Here are those reviews we promised. These first ones are from castbox.fm. This one from Julian Drolet Noel. I am starting to be fluent in English, and listening to your stories helps me. I can feel that effort is put in these stories, and it's always nice to listen to them on a bike ride. Please keep going. Julian, Montreal. And this one from Castbox. Madhav Krishna. Just good. And this one. Melek Duwadi. Oh my God, thank you. And this one from Archie Smith. Great. Thanks. 
And this one from An Thuy. Where can I find transcription for this audio? I want to improve my listening skill and need this to check. On Thuy, we don't do transcriptions. Sorry. However, since they are published short stories, you can try Project Gutenberg. Look up the author and the short story, and you should be able to find it there. Jed Ward. So happy I found this podcast. It makes me feel cultured. The narration is excellent. And this one from Cheryl Jeffers. Five stars. I recently found 1001 Classic Short Stories, and I just love it. I love the opening music, the stories, and the narrator's voice. Don't change anything, just add more stories. And this one from Armin Van Buren. Thank you. Your channel made me interested in classical stories, and I enjoyed them very much. Thanks for your endless endeavor to build podcasts. This one from Laurel Ornelas. I really enjoy these stories. Love your voice. And this one from Singed. Excellent podcast. Five stars. This one from Dade Cariaga. Great story. Hi, John. I love your podcast. Keep it up. I really enjoyed the Mark Twain stories and the Cthulhu stuff. I've always pronounced it Cthulhu. Yours, Dade. And now these reviews from Apple iTunes. This one from Case Odell. Enjoyable, easy listening. And this show makes the drive much more enjoyable. Voice and style aren't overdone, and the story selection is great. Something for everyone. And this one, from D.W. Wooden. Fantastic. This is exactly what I've been looking for. Short stories to listen to at work. I enjoy the selection of works as well as the narrator. And this one from Stitcher.com, another podcast host. Love it. Recently, my family and I made a 4,200-mile road trip, with the majority of the driving taking place in the American Southwest. We listened mostly to podcasts while in the car. We found 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales and loved it. They are well done, straightforward, and enjoyable. We really enjoyed the episode about the inspiration for the movie The Sons of Katie Elder. To make it even better at the time we're listening to make it even better at the time we were listening to that episode, it just so happened we were driving through that part of Texas where a lot of the real-life Marlowe events took place. Keep up the good work. And that story's over at 1001 Heroes. But we really appreciate your review, Brad Thomas. Thank you. And another Stitcher review. I just found this podcast and listened to an episode or two while at the gym. It has captured my attention and makes the time fly. This episode especially is timely since my spouse and I are beginning a road trip in a few weeks. I know we will both enjoy listening to 1001 as we make our way across the country. Good job. And this one from Stitcher.com. Great classics and narration. I love John's voice. I like that he gives some of the history of the story he's about to tell. I look forward to listening for many years to come. The sounds added to the story are a stroke of genius. They really bring the story to life like nothing else. Thank you very much, Wesley. Appreciate it. And thank all of you so much for taking the time to write reviews. They help us in a big way. And today we covered Stitcher.com, we covered CastBox.fm, and we also gave some recent Apple Podcast reviews. Thank you all so much. Don't forget to share us with others, help a friend to subscribe to us, and please do visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash 1001stories. Thank you so much, and thanks for being fans of the show. We'll see you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time.